Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is the podcast. So, Tamara. So, Dale. You are a woman. You would be correct. And you That's went, very insightful of you. Yeah, and you went to seminary. I did. And you've done some speaking and some writing, and you've been involved in leadership in many different ways. Yeah. So what up with that? Let's talk about it. Yeah. Am I allowed to do it? Am I not allowed to do it? Let's talk about it. I guess we'll find out. So this is actually going to be a two-part episode uh, because this is such a big topic in general, but especially right now, this topic of women in leadership in the church. And so what we want to do is just break it down biblically. We want to look at it practically even a little little bit historically, and kind of rustle through some of the issues at hand, because there are differing views and even very divisive views on women in leadership. And this is an important topic because from a very practical standpoint, where your theological view lies, practically it makes a big difference in day-to-day life, particularly for women. So if as a man you have a very distinct theological view on what it is that women are allowed to do in leadership and also within the church, that weighs pretty heavy on women because as members of church and as members of society and as people in workplaces, the the view that people have of women and what they're allowed to do and what they're permitted to do matters in the way that we live our everyday lives. So this is not an abstract topic that doesn't affect people. It actually affects far more than I think some people realize. As a woman, I am obviously very much aware of it, but even in my pursuit for higher education, particularly within theology and scripture, That was something I had to wrestle with. And I've actually had people tell me, well, (laughs) I've had people in some polite way. You you had someone come up and and ask you what you were doing. And you said you were going to Talbot School of Theology. And their response was, you're a woman. Why? Yeah. So I've certainly had people who've supported it. I've had people who then questioned, like, well, what do you want to do with that? What are your motives behind going to seminary? Are you trying to be a pastor? So there is a wide spectrum, and it's something I've had to personally wrestle with and something that I grew up in a church where like women didn't preach. Uh, women had some sort of leadership roles, but not a lot. It gets a little messy as you start to try and draw lines of where are women allowed to exercise authority and leadership and where are they not. But I think for me, I had to really question it and evaluate where I stood theologically when I went on missions trips to other parts of the world where they're living in small villages and the only person who is a Christian is a woman within 50 miles. And the theological views that I held no longer worked in that context. And that kind of challenged me a little bit because where your theology stands, it has to work cross-culturally. It has to work throughout time, throughout 
centuries. And so if your theology doesn't work in a certain location, but it works in America, then that's probably not the right theology because God doesn't only care about Americans. He cares about everyone. So I think that really opened my eyes and made me think, wow, how could my theological view fit here? But it very clearly doesn't. So does that mean God doesn't want anyone in this village to be saved because the only person who's saved is a woman and she can't teach or preach? So I was challenged to kind of reevaluate where I sit on this particular topic. Right. And so there are a lot of questions that you have when you're looking at this practically, because this, again, as you said, this isn't like an abstract theological concept like, oh, is it a literal seven-day creation? You could be on one side of that or the other side of that, and it really has no bearing on how we do business as a church mm-hmm. or like what are the exact sequence of events when Jesus comes back. There's a lot of discussion over that, but wherever you fall, it doesn't necessarily have any bearing on doing your day-to-day church activities and you know trying to push forth the mission of Jesus in mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. when it comes to this, it very much changes the 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 texture of how you are going about loving God and loving people and pushing the mission of Jesus forward in your church. And there are two major buckets that you can fall into. Like as people have looked at the relevant uh, passages of Scripture, there are basically two main buckets you can fall into. And it's kind of a spectrum, mm-hmm. but there's kind of a line in between them. And on one side, you would have egalitarians, and on the other side, you'd have complementarians. Now, both sides, if they are following scripture, they would say that men and women are equal in value and worth. Both egalitarians and complementarians would say that. Egalitarians would say that men and women are equal in value and worth, and they're also equal in the way that they function in the church. Whereas a complementarian would say they're equal in value and worth, but they're different in the functions that they serve in the church. That's an important piece that you shared because sometimes people will categorize a person who's complementarian and say they don't value women. I mean, some don't, but that's not no, a but that characteristic of the view itself. Right. That's not a fair understanding of what it is to be complementarian. Right. That's a separate issue. It's a separate problem that certain people have, but it doesn't mean that it's a problem within the theological view as a complementarian at large. They would certainly say women are valuable and they're dignified and they're created in the image of God in the same way that man was, but there are differences in their roles within the church itself. Yeah, and then so for the complementarian, the next question for them becomes, what are those different functions? And this is where you get a lot of variety in terms of your flavor of complementarian, depending on <laughs> right. how they, they answer all of these questions, including, you know, can a woman preach? Can she have any kind of public platform in the church? Can women be elders on an elder board? Are you allowed to call a woman on staff pastor, or do you have to call her director? Mm-hmm. Can women lead worship? Can they pray during a worship service? Can they pass out the communion elements or collect offering? Mm -hmm. That one might seem strange, but that actually, I was in a church where that became a question because there was someone on the elder board who believed that only the elders should administer communion. And since it was an all-male eldership, that would essentially say that only men are allowed to administer the communion elements or pass the 
you know, the trays with the communion elements on there. And so there is a lot of variety where someone would say like, oh, I think a woman can preach, but she can't be an elder. A woman mm -hmm. can pray, but she can't preach. Or There's just a lot of different uh, nuances to this. Right. And so you might have, you know, a handful of churches that are would identify themselves as complementarian, but then you, you show up to a Sunday morning service and it looks drastically different in terms of the roles that women are playing because there is such a, a wide degree of differences in how you answer particular questions. And I would like to believe that everyone is genuinely desiring to look at scripture and answer these questions. So I think everyone's trying to come from a good place of we want to be held accountable to what scripture says and we want the way that we operate to be in line with scripture. And that is not as clear cut as we would like it to be. And I think that's why we have the two buckets. Yeah. And on the other <laughs> side is the egalitarian side, which was the answers to all these questions. Is just yes. So it's very simple. Mm -hmm. Since it is a spectrum, you will have people who are closer to egalitarian, but because the answer to all those questions isn't yes, women can do anything in any of these roles then they would fall on the complementarian side. Right, whereas so, some who are complementarian might appear egalitarian because they would say women can do just about everything except for this one thing. Maybe they can't preach or maybe they can't be an elder. So there's a no to one of the questions, but everything else is a yes. And so it is just such a wide spectrum for complementarians. Right, and so you can really be a hair's breadth away from being an egalitarian. Mm -hmm. But yeah. still have some kind of a distinction there. And I think there are even maybe some different nuances depending on the egalitarian church. Because some hmm. churches are egalitarian in their theology, but when you actually look at their organizational structure, it's not necessarily lived out as much as you would think in that an egalitarian church and a hmm. soft complementarian church. In the way that they actually implement it and live it out, it could actually look identical. Where he said, but we would be open to a woman in this or that position, but there just isn't one as opposed to on the other side that looks exactly the same. Say, nope, this is the way we wanted it to be. So just to recap, complementarian would say that men and women are both equal in value, but they're different in function. And so when it comes to the church setting, you would see women operating functionally different than men based on the way that you would answer certain questions. Where the egalitarian view would say we are equal in value and we're equal in function. So anything a man can do, a woman can do within the context of the church, and that's biblically supported. So those are the two views. Let's take a look at some scripture verses, and as we look at them, when you first read them, it might sound clear-cut, but then as we look at it a little bit more, it's like, ooh, well, you can really see it from, from two different angles. And that mm -hmm. first one would come in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And that's referring to the fact that Eve ate the fruit first and then she gave it to Adam. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there it is. 
case <laughs> open and shut. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Boom. Well, End of podcast. Yeah, it's not exactly that simple. And the reason it's not that simple is you have really two issues happening in this verse. You have one as you're looking at the Greek and what exactly is the Greek saying, which face value in our English translation, it seems like we know exactly what it's saying. But in the Greek, there's kind of debate among scholars of what does it mean in the Greek exercise authority? Right. Is that actually that they're not allowed to exercise authority or should it be better interpreted as abuse authority? Right. So that there would be some kind of way that they would exercise it properly, but they ought not to abuse authority when they're exercising it over a man. And the reason why we have that ambiguity is because the way that we understand the meanings of words in uh, the Greek New Testament and in the Old Testament Hebrew is that we look at the other places that that same word is used. As close as you can get to the sources, better. Like if it's written in that same chapter or in that same book, you can get a, a good idea, but then you widen it to you know other texts written by that author, and you widen it to other texts in Scripture, and then you'll look out even further to uh, contemporary texts of the time that how is this word generally used in language at that moment in history? The issue with this word, exercise authority, to teach and exercise authority, is that this is really the only place we see that word in the New Testament, and we can find it a couple different places in contemporary writings, but it's just not super duper clear what it exactly means. We have an idea. It either means to exercise authority or it carries with it this connotation of abusing authority. It's just in this situation that that distinction becomes very important in how you understand the overall thrust of this passage. Right. And so that's a huge issue in terms of not whether or not we can trust this verse and its validity in scripture, but it is just an issue in terms of the interpretation of this actual passage. And another issue that we run into is the cultural context of what Paul was writing during this time. So this was actually written to Timothy as he was overseeing a church in Ephesus. And now what was happening in Ephesus was certainly a particular cultural issue that was happening right where they had the temple of artemis which was this greek uh goddess oh, actually i can't remember there's diana and artemis one is the greek version one is the roman version i can't remember which is which but <laughs> it was this goddess that was basically this domineering female presence and because of that the women in that society took on this domineering presence and so this was really a cultural issue that was happening specifically in Ephesus. And we have to remember that when these letters were written, they were let, written for a particular audience. And so Paul was writing this, thinking of what was happening in Ephesus and what was the context culturally happening among the women in Ephesus. And there was this issue of women being overly domineering among the society at large and what was happening culturally was leaking into the church obviously because they live in society and so that was becoming an issue within the church itself so we could see that this is not a unilateral prohibition against women everywhere for all time that it's actually a prohibition against this specific 
audience that he was writing to directly and he was thinking of them as he was writing to them. Right. And so there really are two, I believe, two legitimate arguments to be made. One is that this is a unilateral prohibition. That you can make a case for that because it, it clearly says I do not permit a woman. And some say like, oh, what he means is I'm not currently permitting a woman to exercise authority or to teach. That argument feels a little bit weak to me. Because mm-hmm. it says, doesn't say that. Right. It says I do not. <laughs> yes, yeah, I do not permit. I mean, you could make that case in the Greek, but it's just not a strong case. I think the stronger case is that over the word exercise authority. Is it exercising authority or abusing authority? So is it this unilateral prohibition that women aren't allowed to teach at all? Or was it this situational thing where women were abusing power in this church and needed to be reined in? I think there's, those are two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. They're legitimate arguments, and that's why we have egalitarians and complementarians, because on either side you can be as faithful to the text as you can be and still come to two different conclusions. I would fall more on the side of this word meaning abusing authority, mm-hmm. that it's not a unilateral prohibition for all people at all times. And the reason for that is this text, but it's also uh, part of a larger understanding of the New Testament and the other scriptures that have something to say about this issue. So taking this as one verse among many, I would lean that way because of the overall thrust of other texts that we've, we have. So going along the lines of what you said, of your understanding of this particular Greek translation to better be read as abuse authority. And the reason why you're saying that is because of the way that we see women in leadership and in authority throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so I want to go ahead and just move on to the next verse. Yes, please. Let me help you make one unclear passage of Scripture more clear by using another unclear passage of Scripture that we find in 1 Corinthians 11. Thank you. Yeah, that that's actually exactly what we're about to do. <laughs> so in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 9, so it's quite a few verses, but it's important to read the whole chunk so we get a full understanding of what's happening here. Yeah, because he kind of weaves a web throughout these however many verses it is, eight verses. Yeah. So it says, Now I commend you because you... Remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. All right. That's clear enough to me. We can move on so to the next passage of scripture. So, Tamara, I noticed that you are not wearing any kind of hat or shawl over your head. No. That's a disgrace. 
you should shave your head. According to this verse, I should shave my head. Yeah, so this is a real interesting one. In uh, many ways. In many ways. There's multiple things that are kind of being challenged with these sets of verses. Yeah, but I guess at the time in Corinth, there was this cultural norm mm-hmm. that women would cover their heads with some kind of garment or shawl or whatever it might be. And that was just something that women did. It was a cultural thing. It was part of what they did and part of what women were expected to do within that culture as a designation of being a woman. Right. But apparently in the church in Corinth, there were women who were praying and prophesying. And we were use the word prophesy. It's not like fortune telling. It's like saying, hey, this is what the scriptures have said. Here's where I see that showing up in a really relevant way in, into something we're seeing right now and just into the the life that you're living into the experiences we're having here's where those timeless truths of scripture are are speaking into that so it's a lot like preaching mm-hmm. so they're praying and prophesying but they were praying and prophesying with their head uncovered and so that was something that was really striking and in many ways in that culture it was pretty offensive mm-hmm. because it seemed as though women were casting off their identity as women and acting in the place of men. What's interesting in this passage isn't so much that Paul says, put the thing back on your head and sit down, but he says, as you are praying and prophesying, Mm -hmm. do so with your head covered. And then he goes into all of these analogies like, because if you're going to cast off what makes you a woman in this culture, well, you might as well just shave your head because it's pretty much the same thing and so the issue wasn't so much that these women were praying and prophesying in the midst of the church it's that they were trying to do so in such a way that was casting off their womanhood and they were trying to act as though they were men and so this is interesting thing that there is there is a place in the church for women to speak there is a place in the church for women to pray publicly but there's a note here that I'm not I'm not sure exactly how to apply it, mm-hmm. but they ought to do so not as a a disregard for their womanhood, but as a a further expression of their womanhood. Right, and so really, what Paul is saying is the issue is not praying within the church or prophesying, which for today could be better understood as even preaching. And so the issue for Paul here is not that women are praying and preaching publicly within the church. The issue was that they were trying to do it as if they were not women. And so Paul is saying, you should celebrate that piece of it. You should still allow that piece to come out in the things that you're doing. So don't try and act as if you're not a woman because you are a woman. And so it's just interesting in this verse to see he is not prohibiting them from doing this. He, he's actually saying, no, continue to do it. He's assuming just, that it's going to happen. Yeah. And he's right. not rebuking it. Yeah. Because he says, when you do it, just make sure you're doing it as if you were a woman and not as if you were a man. And then he also sets up this kind of paradigm of mutuality between men and women that man is born from woman, mm-hmm. but woman was created from man, namely that Eve was created out of Adam. And so there's this this sense in which they're unique, but you can't have one without the other. And he even likens this to, you know, God the Father and Jesus Christ and God the Spirit. There's this mutuality where you can't have one without the other, but they're working in harmony. They're distinct. They have distinct roles, but there's this mutuality between 
between them. And so that's an important note as well. And it's actually, this is going to be an important verse to remember because just a couple chapters later, in this very same letter to this very same church, we see another often quoted verse that is used as a tool to argue against women having any kind of public leadership role in the church. And that comes in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And verses 34 and 35 say this, As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says so. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So that's super confusing, because just three chapters earlier, Paul was talking about how when women pray and prophesy, Mm -hmm. that they ought to just do so with the head covering, because it's disgraceful for them to act like they were men. They should act like they're women while they're praying and prophesying. And then it says here that they should be silent. If they got something to say, ask your husband when you get home. And so it, how do we harmonize those those two commands? And there's a, there's a lot of different ways that this has been interpreted. I'll just give you the one that I think makes the most sense. So this letter was in response to a letter or maybe a series of letters that they had written to Paul. And that there were things that they said, there were questions that they had. And so a lot of times Paul would quote what they had said. Like they said, all things are lawful for me. And so Paul would quote that, you know, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. So he did that earlier in in this letter. And there was another one where they had asked about whether it was good for men and women to have sex in a, you know, in the context of marriage. And so he quoted something that they said as a question, and then he answered that. And so he does that a number of different times. I think there's like three or four different times he does it. The, the issue is there weren't quotation marks in the Greek. There's no punctuation that would mark that off very clearly. Mm-hmm. We have to kind of infer it based on the context. And so I think based on the context here, Paul is talking about the orderliness of worship. That there, was, there was all kinds of nuts stuff mm-hmm. happening where people would – stand up and speak in tongues and then someone would try to interpret and someone else is speaking in tongues and then someone's prophesying. And so it was just like this chaos. And so Paul, he spends a lot of time talking about the different spiritual gifts and how important each one is. But then he calls for orderly worship that you should do all these things in the proper order. And so a few verses before the ones where he says a woman should remain silent, he says, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, and each in turn, and then let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and then let each one weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one, so that you may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And so basically what he's saying is like, you all have these gifts of teaching, of singing a song, of having something encouraging to say. You each have those gifts, and you can each express those gifts in turn. But then would come the quotation but a woman should remain silent if she has something to say. She should ask her husband when she gets home. 
This is the verse that comes directly after that, which I think is a rebuke of that quotation. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? I mean, talking to the men who are saying this, mm-hmm. that like, it, so you're the only one that, that God speaks to? You're the only one that can interpret these things? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command from the Lord, namely that everybody in their turn can express their gifts. And so you, you shouldn't be fighting and domineering over this. If anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongue, but all things should be done in decently order. And so that is an interpretation of that verse that to me it makes sense with everything else he said. Because he's saying, when women pray and prophesy, wear a head covering, and don't be chaotic as a church over who's praying and prophesying or singing or whatever it might be, speaking in a tongue. Everyone has something of value to give because of the spiritual gifts he's been given. Mm-hmm. Just do it in turn. But the women can't, aren't allowed to do that. Are you the only one then that, that God is speaking to? No. Like, recognize what I'm saying here. Otherwise, you're not recognized. Keep yeah. everything in order and give everyone a voice. That's how I would interpret this passage of scripture. Yeah, and that seems to fall in line with the full context of what's happening as opposed to this random direction being given to women in the middle of talking about the way that a service should go, worship service should go. It just feels shoehorned in to say, but women can't speak and they need to sit down and they need to ask their husbands when they get home. But then he goes back to talking about the order of service again. Yeah, it seems very out of place that it's there. And so there's been a lot of interpretations that, like, maybe he's saying that because, like, he doesn't mean necessarily women should always be silent in church. But there were, like, women maybe in this church that were, like, shouting down the preacher, like, asking a bunch Mm -hmm. of questions. Which, I mean, maybe that might be the case. But even then, the flow just doesn't make sense to me. Right. And I think based on the the structure of 1 Corinthians prior to that, this being a quotation that he then is responding to— I, I think makes sense. And it's not outside the realm that Paul would quote something that he thinks is false and then respond. Right. And we've seen him do that in this letter itself. Exactly. And it's kind of right. because this letter was a response to a correspondence he got mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. There's kind of that back and forth. The The issue is, and it's the same thing we saw with that passage in Timothy, where we're not you know, 100% sure what that Greek word was. I believe that they understood what that Greek word meant when he said it. They're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But because we're separated Mm -hmm. by time and by culture and by language, we didn't necessarily get it. I think that that kind of same thing is happening here. We don't have the punctuation marks in the manuscripts, but this is why Paul would send someone with his letter to explain what he meant when Mm -hmm. he was talking about these things. We never got those interpretations. We didn't. We just got the text itself, which is inspired, but we don't always know with as much precision as we would like exactly what it means. We know generally what it means, but there's issues like this where it isn't as clear as we would have hoped, and that's how we can end up on two sides of such an important issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are some other notable verses on leadership in Titus and in 1 Timothy that describe eldership within the church, and that's... Describe purely in terms of the masculine. So we see that in one of the descriptions, it says that he should be an elder, should be a 
a one woman man. So he should be married to only one woman. Right. But, and that's the literal Greek, what it means. And I think most translations will say that he should be the man of one wife. Right. He should only have one wife, but it, it literally says he should be a one woman man. And that's a masculine designation. Yeah. And so some people would understand this to mean that because it's, it's specifically calling out a man to be the husband of one wife only that through that, it would say that eldership is exclusively for men only because it doesn't say or a woman should be the wife to only one husband. So because it's only making that distinction for a man, it could be the understanding that only men can be in eldership. But it could actually just be the general masculine term being used And we actually see that throughout scripture. So a lot of the times we'll see mankind or man, and it's really referring to humanity or everyone. So women are included in that. And so this is another difficult one where it's not clear if it it is specifically only men it's talking about or if it's just the general masculine term that could mean men and women. Right, and that's something that's a little disconnected for us as English speakers because we don't have a gendered language. Like, you know, Spanish is a gendered language. Uh, there are other languages that are that are gendered where it's not talking about male and female, it's talking about masculine and feminine, and a lot of that kind of overlaps. Where if you're using a masculine, you could be talking about a group of all men, or you could be talking about a group of mixed men and women. If you're using the feminine, you're talking to a group of women. That's typically the only way it is. But there is this ambiguity, again, there that you can interpret mm-hmm. it one way or the other. This falls less on the side of an egalitarian argument, I think, in terms of strength of argument. Mm-hmm. This would push me more towards the complementarian side of things when it comes to eldership because I, it, it, there's a case to be made. I just don't think it's the strongest case, and I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know if it holds up. Though I think it is legitimate if— if you truly believe that and you you're comfortable with that interpretation. Certainly. But you're right. Out of the three large sections of scripture that we've pointed to, I would say this one has the least strength in terms of it not being what it appears at face value in the English translation. Right. There's, there's far less wiggle room in the Where the other two, it does seem that there's uh, strong arguments on both sides. This one seems to lean towards one side in my opinion. Right. And so those are some of the major texts that when you're talking about this issue that you would go to, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a couple of others, but you know, some in Ephesians, some in first Peter, where it talks mainly about the relationship between man and woman in marriage, but we'll set those aside for now because we're talking more in terms of church leadership But Mm -hmm. even more than the kind of commands from whether it's Paul or it's Peter, it's also important to look at the narratives of the New Testament to see how these commands and, I guess, protocols are being carried out in the church in the first century. And as we look to the New Testament, there are actually a a vast amount of women leaders Mm -hmm. that we see exercising different functions. And a few of them are Lydia, who was clearly a leader of a church. Philippi, Paul met her there, and she was a woman of influence. 
and the church in Philippi ended up meeting at her house, which means right. at the very least she was, you know, an administrator and mm-hmm. in very high level organizational leadership for that church. Yeah. And so we don't exactly know what that leadership role looked like in terms of what was she doing? Was she an elder? Was she teaching? Was she preaching? Like, we don't know how to classify it in the terms of what we understand as a worship service, but without a doubt, she was a significant leader within this church. And within the community, she was a successful businesswoman who was, who had some wealth. Right. And we also see Phoebe. The unique thing about Phoebe is she was tasked to deliver and explain the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Right. And so there were these small cell groups in the city of Rome that she would she would go to and bring right. the letter and read it and explain it. Yeah. And some might say that that would actually take on a form of preaching and teaching because she was called to explain and answer questions that they might have in relation to that letter. That was normally the role of the person who would deliver a letter. But some argue that she just delivered it and she wasn't actually explaining it. That doesn't seem to fit in line with the way that letters were usually delivered and the way that Paul worked that out. So to say that, obviously we don't have really evidence one way or the other, but if you're just following the norm of how letters were delivered and the person who was called to deliver it was almost always the person who was explaining it and teaching it. So it it could be made that she was actually preaching or teaching in the house churches in Rome. Right. And that's significant because it was the letter to the Romans, which if you you read the New Testament. This was a very large letter. Yeah. And for Christians, it was a, it's a very mm-hmm. formative and an important piece of scripture for us as we understand very many matters of theology relating to Jesus. I mean, so you don't want to miss that. that that's that was an it wasn't just any letter. This was a really important letter that was inspired by God and penned by Paul, and he commended it to Phoebe to to give to those different churches in Rome. Yeah, and some other women that we see is Priscilla, who is very likely a teacher. Yeah, so Priscilla and Aquila was her husband. Interesting in that alone, whenever you see Priscilla and Aquila, her name is always mentioned first. And in uh, New Testament kind of writing convention, and particularly in Acts where they're mentioned, the name of the person that's said first was the one that was more more prominent at, at the time of the story that you're writing about. Right. And so most people would assume that her husband should be listed first, but just based on the way that we understand the structure of writing to be done, it would actually signify that Priscilla had a little bit more of an influence or authority and leadership than her husband. Yeah. She had a prominence and both Priscilla and Aquila together as a couple were very formative in helping Paulos, who was another very influential teacher, but he had some wonky issues with his theology. Mm -hmm. And so Priscilla and Aquila sat him down and said like, hey, let's let's talk about this and kind of set him on a better path. But again, Priscilla is the one who's mentioned first, which means that she very well may have been doing the heavy lifting lifting and had more influence Mm -hmm. in those circles. We also see Chloe, who she was certainly an influential leader within the church. And we don't know much about her. She, she she might not have been a church leader, but she was certainly an influential business person. And she's mentioned in, I believe, 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, I heard from Chloe's people, da-da-da, such and such. And so, <laughs> and such and such. so she was influential. We don't know the extent of that, but she was an influential person mm-hmm. as, as a business leader or whatever it might have been. 
Certainly. Yeah. And we see the two Marys, you know, Mary, Martha's sister and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Obviously, they both held some great influence and leadership throughout the New Testament. You see stories of Mary, Jesus's mother, more than once where it is unfortunate for some of these women. You kind of only see them in a small section of scripture. So if you're you're not really paying attention, you're kind of zooming through it, you might miss their stories and, and the way that they were influential just because they don't get as much coverage as maybe some of the other main biblical characters like obviously Paul and Peter mm-hmm. and James. But we also see Lois and Eunice who were Timothy's grandmother and mother. And Timothy actually says that it was his mother and grandmother that taught him the faith. Right. And they were very influential in his understanding of the faith growing up. Yeah. And so maybe they weren't, you know, church leaders per se, but they were certainly influential leaders in his life. Mm-hmm. Right. Another one, the, the, we hear another two women we hear about, ironically, we know their leaders because they actually got called out by Paul in his letters to the Philippians. And that was Yodia, Yodia and Syntyche which are two of the hardest names to pronounce in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But he calls them out in Philippians chapter 4. He talks about how they can't agree on something. And we don't know what it is, but he doesn't call out any particular sin issue. There's just this disagreement in the church. Mm -hmm. It's, It's very conceivable that the issue they were talking about were issues of leadership of that church. You know, what what the church should be doing, you know, in leadership, especially in church leadership, there's there's often you know, decisions that need to be made that are difficult decisions. You can argue we should be doing this or we should be doing that. And so it seems like these two women just could not agree and it was tearing their church apart. And so, you know, Paul says like, I I need you guys to agree. I need you guys to get on the same page. But in doing that, we get this implicit affirmation of the fact that they are important leaders in that church Mm -hmm. as an organization. Oh yeah. Going back to um, Mary and Martha, I wanted to talk about the story uh, in Jesus's life that I think is often uh, misinterpreted. Do you know what, which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Where what? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is cleaning and doing all the housework. Yeah. And so the common interpretation of that story is when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are mm-hmm. worried about many things, but Mary, she's she's concerned with the one thing that matters and it won't be taken from her. And right. they often... The off, often the interpretation of that is that Jesus doesn't want you to do, 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 do. He doesn't want you to do, do, do. He wants you to be. He wants you to just sit at his feet, not to strive, but to just be. That sounds, you know, fine and good, except for Jesus wants you to do both. He wants you to <laughs> be in his presence, and he wants you to go and do. And so that that interpretation doesn't necessarily hold up. But if we understand at the time that women ought not to have been disciples of rabbis, like women were not the ones in the synagogues following rabbis around, uh, kind of entering into that leadership. They weren't disciples. And so when Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, in many ways she was acting out of place for her culture. Right. She was doing what only men were allowed to do. And so Martha's like, sis, what are you doing? Right. Get Get in the kitchen like a good woman should. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's when Jesus steps in. He says, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about a great many things. But Mary's actually 
unlock the secret here, which is that women can be my disciples just as much as men. Mm. And that will not be taken from her. Yeah. And so that, that fits the, the text a lot better in a way that jives with the rest of scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I thought that was an, an, an important thing to bring up. And then we see in Acts, there's just like this blanket statement in a couple of different verses. There are women of high standing. There were leading women among the Greeks that came to faith. And so women in leadership is, is sprinkled all throughout the New Testament, just you know, through these examples that we've seen. And so we have to harmonize that with our understanding of these other texts that we mm-hmm. are trying to interpret. Right. And so when it comes to women in leadership, this is a very weighty question. And it's a question that we need to have answers to because, again, it's not something that doesn't matter in our day-to-day life. It actually uh, matters greatly, especially if you're a woman. And not only thinking through, like, well, um, what is it that women should do and shouldn't do, but also for me as a woman, like, I want to make sure that I am being true to Scripture and being a good follower of Jesus and not just saying, well, Surely that's not right. I'm going to throw it out the window. But wrestling with it and saying, okay, Lord, what have you called me to as a woman? And um, the opportunities that seem to be before me, am I not allowed to step forward in them because they're not allowed? And so it's important to know where you stand and to have wrestled with it and to have worked through it and figured it out because it, wherever you land, it becomes very practical in day-to-day life. Right, and so we threw a ton of stuff at you in this podcast and we did hopefully it's clear as mud at this point <laughs> and if you're still feeling like okay well like but now what mm-hmm. stick around for our next episode you know we talked a lot about the theology on, on this episode but in part two of of this episode we're gonna talk a little bit more about practically what this looks like for us Yes, and please come back uh, next week because we will have a special guest who's going to be joining us for the first time ever on the Her and Him podcast. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. We'd also love it if you head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. And be sure to come visit us at herandhim.com where you'll find show notes for this episode, our blog, and other resources to help you experience the abundant life that Jesus promised to us. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. In a recent survey, parents reported that 52% of homeschooled children need learning accommodations. These parents need practical advice, encouragement, and hope to fuel their homeschooling efforts. The Empowering Homeschool Conversations podcast is where parents gain wisdom on how to teach unique learners successfully at home, like Laura, who recently told us, I needed this episode. I don't need a fancy curriculum or need to be a special ed teacher to teach my son. You have given me hope. To listen now, go to Life Audio or search Empowering Homeschool Conversations on your favorite podcast app.